Welcome to Creekside Church, everybody. It's great to see everyone here on this uh, Memorial Day weekend and nice sunny day outside. Uh, welcome to the Lord's house. Um, you can see we've got a few different instruments up here today, and we call this our Folk Music Sunday. Um, so we have a lot of fun with this and hope you'll enjoy it as well. Um, if you'd stand up and sing a, an oldie but goodie with us. sit down. If, you've, if you have served or are serving in, in the armed forces, if you could remain standing, we'd appreciate it. Um, at this time, we have a little Memorial Day presentation. We appreciate those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. We also appreciate those who have been willing to and just to serve, serve our nation. So um, those of you who are, who are standing, this would be for you. Not too young. Too young to join the army. Too young to go to war but not too young to understand we're what you fought for. For us, you left your families to see that we'd be free. For us, you obeyed orders to preserve our liberty. No, please know we're grateful. To you, we are in debt. We want nothing but to honor you, so glad our paths have met. For you, we sing our hearts out and thank our God above. We may not even know your names, still we give you all our love. I want to thank the praise team and Endure Kids for honoring our, our veterans and for the, the joy of worshiping the Lord together. A few announcements that I want to call to your attention. First of all, if you're a guest and this is your first time at Creekside Church, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. We're very glad that you're here. There is an extra flap on the bulletin. It's kind of a tear-off thing if you feel comfortable uh, filling that out and 
tearing it off, then you can drop it in the little pouches that go by later when we have the offering. That's all we'd ask you to put in the offering as our guest this morning. We're just glad that you're here. There are a few other things that I need to call to the attention of our church family. First of all, we have a nursery remodeling, pro- remodeling project that's going on this next week, and Ken Taylor has asked me to announce he's going to be here from 8 in the morning till 4 p.m. So if you can come between 8 and 4, he'll kind of give you guidance and direction as to what to do. If you can't make it at that time, you can come later and talk to him, arrange it to be with him. He'll be here, I think, before the service is over. He had another obligation. There he is, right there. Okay, sorry, Ken, didn't see you. So he'll be here. He'll be out by the Welcome Center after the... So talk to Ken and he can line you up with something that's a little easier for you to take care of by yourself after those eight to four hours, if you would. Big project, it's an exciting thing. It's a short-term mission project right here at home. So just look at it that way. Also, I want to call your attention to a couple of other things. Camp Vera is coming up. Marge is gearing up for Camp Vera. You can see the information in the bulletin. Please prayerfully consider how you might be a part of helping us reach out to uh, another group of uh, people with the gospel of Jesus Christ through serving this way and uh, here if nothing else you need to hear Marge's story behind why Camp Vera got started it's a very uh, compassionate and a worthwhile ministry so encourage you to do that Uh, you can talk to Marge or sign up I think there's a sign up sheet or she left a number on the insert in the bulletin also it's not in the bulletin but uh, I'm going to get this wrong if I say it but Bob's Big Bubba Burger and Brats Bash. Okay, Bob Calmer is hosting, and surely I'm sure it has a lot to do with it too. But they're hosting at their home on June 14th a Big Burger and Brats Bash. So you can uh, mark that down. The 14th, there'll be more information coming. Also, uh, Scott and Abby are having a reception uh, after their wedding. We celebrate and congratulate them on their wedding. So uh, next. Saturday, next Saturday in Atlantic, you can see the information in the bulletin, just want to make you aware of that. Okay, you all can read, so I'm going to let you read the rest of it, it's in the bulletin. Let's just pray. Father, there's so many reasons to give you praise and adoration, but most of all because you pardon all of our iniquities and you cleanse us from all our sins. I ask that as we turn our hearts to the study of your word that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths out of your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You saints done it. Get one challenge for the silver medal. 9.80 all the way from Beijing to London. The year was 2016. I remember watching Usain Bolt win the 100-meter dash in the Olympic Games, coming from behind as he did. It's just uh, remarkable that he win, win by that distance, having come from that far behind on such a short race. What we don't see is all the preparation, all of the steps that he took to prepare himself, to prove that he was the fastest man in the world, to grab hold of that gold medal, and also through his efforts to propel so many others onto excellence and superiority in their athletic achievements. As I thought about Usain Bolt and his accomplishments, I thought there's a great parallel with every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because the same things are true for us. There are steps that need to be taken in order for us to prove 
that we are and to propel others into the grip of God's grace. We're not looking for a gold medal, but we're looking to prove and persevere and grab hold of the grace of God so that we can understand that we're truly in the grip of God's grace. We've talked about, and for those who are new, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and so we've seen the faith that endures defined, we've seen it explained, we've seen it illustrated, and we've held up Jesus as the highest example, and then the one who gives us strength to endure when we hit the wall from the hurts, the hardships, and the humiliation that come as part of God's Direct discipline to develop us into the people God wants us to be. And now we turn to the kind of the concluding thoughts of the writer of Hebrews on how we endure and how we know for sure and what are the steps that we need to take in order to prove that we are in and propel others into the grip of God's grace and prevent them from falling short. And so I'd invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. It's, the page number is listed there for you in the bulletin. If you want to grab one of those that are under the seat in front of you to look at it, or if you have your device, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 12, where we're going to look at verses 12 to 17. And there, we're given three steps. Again, this is my outline of the Bible passage, okay, but I see in here three steps that we are to take in order to finish the race of faith well in the grip of God's grace. I'm going to read the text, verses 12 through 17, and then we'll begin to unpack these three steps. First of all, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12 with verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. By, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he found no place for repentance. Though he sought for it with tears. The first step that I see in the passage is in verses 12 through 13 where we're to provide others with stability, provide others with support in their walk of faith. The race language that we found first in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3 is now picked up again and it's revisited as he shares with us two ways to provide support. Notice the text says, first of all, therefore, and again, when we see a therefore in the text, we're supposed to ask what it's there for. And what the therefore does is it ties what's before with what comes after. And so he's introducing the concluding thoughts. Introducing the concluding thoughts on enduring the difficult race. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a runner, but I know that one of the first signs of a runner who is fatigued is that their arms start to drop. And their knees start to wobble. And they, now that's probably, maybe those aren't in that order. But they, they, they start dropping their arms or else they get a little more stiff 
in their, in their running, or they run, they start waddling, going side to side, and you know, so I used to yell at my daughter, thumbs up, you know, because if your thumbs are up, they, they can't, they got to be this way, you know, so you can stretch and stride out, propel yourself, and so this is the language that we have in the text, their author borrows a word picture, if you will, and he does, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, who wrote to encourage those who are physically, emotionally, and spiritually fatigued and flagging in their faith in Israel. The remnant. In Isaiah 35.3, we read these words. Encourage the exhausted. Those with, as the English Standard Version says, drooping hands. And those, and strengthen the feeble, that is, those with weak knees. Uh, the author of Hebrews echoes Isaiah's admonition here in verse 12. Strengthen means to straighten up, to shore up. I remember uh, a couple years ago I was attending the state track meet over at Drake Stadium and I was watching as a, one of the runners came around the, the last curve and started to, started to wobble and then all of a sudden, boom, she was on the track. And I was like, oh, wow. And some people came over and then she stumbled and staggered and pushed herself up and then con tried to continue, but she couldn't and she collapsed again. So then the, the track officials and people came over and they picked her up literally and they got under her and then she was able to, with their help, get off the track. That's the picture. We, as the believers in Christ, are admonished to come alongside those who are faltering those who are struggling, those who are stumbling, those who are sputtering in the race of faith, and encourage them and to help them out. Because he says, he's just talked about the, the discipline of the Lord that's to develop us and the persecution, the hardships and the hurt and the humiliation that comes because we name the name of Christ. And that can be discouraging and frustrating and so we need the body of believers, other believers to come alongside. As I was reading this, I was thinking about a, a couple uh, that I know. Their 47-year-old son died suddenly. And you know, it's just, and, and I, as a parent, you know, it's just not right in your eyes to have to bury your kids. You know, they're supposed to do that for me someday. And I remember, and I'll call them Bill and Betty. Uh, Bill and Betty were heartbroken. But the small group of people that had been meeting with them for a few years rallied. And those people who were part of their small group stepped up. And they showed up. And they shored up this hurting and distraught couple. And got them through that time. That's a picture of strengthening those who are weak. And so this morning I think the one question would be, what, what can I do? What can we do for those who are struggling? Those who are sputtering? Those who are stumbling? To stay faithful and endure the race. And I just brainstormed and thought of these things, which aren't an exhaustive list. But what can we do? Well, you say, well... We can show up, our presence. We can, if we can't be there physically with our presence, we can make our presence known. You can send a text, you can write a note, you can give them a phone call. We can 
use our positive words, things that when we're there with them, what do we say? We say things that should encourage them. Our prayers, and give them God's perspective. God's perspective. Now, we just spent a few minutes last week talking about God's discipline, and it may be that that's what God is doing. Now, remember, discipline is for development, not necessarily a chastisement. That's not necessarily the, the, cause or the point of it. Keep pointing our brothers and sisters in Christ to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. There's nothing that can separate us from his love. I remember somebody saying this to me, and I, it always stuck with me. Whoever doubt the love of God, we just need to look to the cross. Because that's where he demonstrated his love supremely for us. Jesus inspires us through his faithfulness. In the midst of gross injustice, he becomes our example of one that we want to follow. But not just that, he identifies with us. We saw in Hebrews chapter 4 that he knows all the things. He suffers and struggles in the same way that we do, and yet without sin. So he identifies with our struggles. And finally, he invests us with the power to keep going. Lord, I can't do this. Well, you got that right. I can't do it. No, you can't. But God in me can. We're supposed to caution the faint-hearted, and sometimes that means cautioning ourselves, to not look at the, well, how can God fix this problem? Always. But isn't that the way it is? Like, well, we go to prayer meeting, and we're going to pray about this, and want God to fix the problem. Well, okay, I understand that. But when do we look at the problem as a chance for us to get to know God better? When do we look at the problem as a chance for us to help others get to know God better? That's the discipline of the Lord just to develop us. It also is the issue of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this surpassing greatness of the joy might not be of ourselves, but of God. And we are torn down in the body, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day so that we can be a witness to the world. The reality of who Jesus is. Who do you know right now? No, blurt it out, please. Do you know somebody who's struggling to stay faithful? Do you know somebody who's kind of been slammed, hurt, humiliated, experiencing the hardships of walking with Jesus? Now, particularly, these are things that come as a result of the persecution because they name the name of Jesus, but it may just be in life and they're struggling to stay faithful. I got some names written. I'm not going to share them. And the question is, what will I do to help? Now, I'm not a runner, but I know that, you know, there's a time and a place and a point at which a runner hits the wall, they say, you know, especially marathon runners, you know, what is mile 22 or whatever it is, where they hit the wall. It's like, oh, they just can't keep going. Have to push through it. Who's hitting the wall? How can I come alongside? So we're supposed to, first of all, encourage perseverance. And the second step, then, is to eliminate any interference. And this is verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. Make straight paths for your feet. Drawing on Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, and I think we have that. I want you to read it. It's on the screen. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path. 
of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your, I think it's foot from evil, not roof. That's probably my fault. You turn your roof from evil. There you go. That's a new proverb. Uh, uh, that's not the ESV. That's the Smith version. Uh, the Smith perversion. Okay. But here's the point. The language of the track and the language of walking is now metaphorically applied to the Christian life. So that we're admonished in our Christian life, as Proverbs talks about it here in Hebrews, to walk the straight and narrow. We're supposed to live consistent with God's commands and our confession. We say we name the name of Jesus, so do we live as if we are one of God's people? And why would we do that? The text says, look at the end of verse 13, or the second phrase, so that, which is the result or the reason, so here's the reason why we're supposed to do that. So that we, the lame, don't stumble and be disjointed. Now, who are the lame? I agree with MacArthur and others who see the lame as a reference to those who step towards Christ they associate with the believers. They even appear to be one of God's children, but they really aren't yet. They're just part of the body of Christ, but they aren't really a member of the body of Christ. They're in the church, so to speak, but they don't really know Christ. And I think what he's saying is that our poor choices, our hypocrisy, our mistreatment of other people, and behavior that is deviant can cause those people who are in association with Christians but not really naming the name of Jesus to stumble and be dislocated from God. Eternally condemned because they turn away. I don't want any part of that. So when we post stupid stuff on Facebook or on Twitter or we act like a jerk with the cashier or the person at the check register, or we mistreat our spouse, or we're unkind in our words, and unbelievers are watching, they go, I don't really like it. And they're turned off by our misbehavior. They get turned off to the gospel. Conversely, if we control our temper, our temper and control our tongues, if we actually are praying for our enemies and loving our enemies, if we're actually pressing ahead rather than compromising in order to avoid being condemned or criticized by the world, but if we stay faithful and unbelievers watch that and see that that person is consistent. They're not perfect. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this is perfection. This is progress. Then they go, whoa, there may be something to this. They would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And the text says, be healed. Be healed. Spiritually healed. I was thinking about a couple I know, and they got married, and uh, uh, the gal was a believer, and the husband was a lame <clears throat> person. <laughs> you know, they around the church, new church words and church stuff, but they'd never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. They'd never accepted his death on the cross as a payment for their sins, acknowledged their own sin, and turned from their sin and repented and said, okay, now I'm going to submit my life to the Lordship of Christ. But 
over the course of time through the wife's gentle prodding and consistent Christian testimony, the husband came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is, I think, kind of what's being talked about in the text here. So there is this, we're supposed to provide support for those. That's the first step. Secondly, we're to pursue peace and purity. Beginning in verse 14, it says, the command, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the holiness or the purity without which no one shall see the Lord. There's two pursuits that are commanded. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Pursue peace and pursue purity. That's what the text says. What does it mean to pursue? Pursue, this is a, an aggressive Greek word. It means with diligence, with intensity, with intentionality. And it doesn't mean just once, it's continuous. When uh, our youngest was playing basketball, she played against uh, this young lady who was Miss Iowa basketball for two years in a row, Ellie Ruffridge from Pocahontas area. And I remember watching an interview. Uh, it's, she's an amazing young lady to watch play basketball. But there's a reason. Because she applied all diligence in her practice. She would go and shoot a thousand shots a day. A thousand shots a day. She spent hours literally practicing. She pursued excellence. We're called to pursue peace with all men. It's a command to pursue harmony inside the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ with all people. It's a reiteration of what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. As much as it's possible, he says, uh, as it depends on you, and that's the key, as it depends on you. No delusion that we will be at peace with all people because it takes two to be at peace, Right? So we just do what we can. And when we've done what we can, then we can't do what we can't do. And they have to do what they do. Within the church, it's a continuous, concerted effort. Harmony, this is the amazing thing about the church of Jesus Christ. Because when there's harmony in the midst of such diversity, it's an absolute blatant testimony to the reality of the person and the work of Jesus. Now, that's John chapter 17, beginning with verse 21 through 23, in a nutshell. Unity shows the world that Jesus is real, because there's no other explanation for it, because the world is always at hostility. And so in the church, we're supposed to work towards it. Oh, I remember being in a boardroom one time several years ago, and I mean, it got heated. This is a Christians, okay, it's not a corporate boardroom, this is a church boardroom and it got heated and some people were offended and uh, my friend was one of the on the tip of the spear of uh, creating the tension and he had a knack for doing that because he was just plain blunt and he didn't really care and he would just say what he thought and that you deal with it and so afterwards <laughs> I had to talk to him and I said you know I think uh, I think he kind of maybe stepped across the line there and so he, by God's grace and in his integrity, he went to the people that he had offended and he asked them to forgive him for any offense and anything he'd done. He was seeking peace. Now, I can't say that there is peace with all of the parties that were involved, but he sought it. 
And that's what God commands us to seek peace. Inside and outside the church. The way of the world is revenge, but that's not the way we're supposed to live. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Do not return evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. We're supposed to love and pray for our enemies. And you know what I'm thinking? Maybe some of you are right in the heat of it right now. I've been in the heat of those things where people have offended me. And it's like, I don't really, don't talk to me about this Jesus stuff. Because I'm kind of ticked off. And I just kind of want to sit in my ticked off state. But when the Spirit of God is alive, we can't stay there. We can't stay there forever. And so we're supposed to move. We are to love and pray for enemies. That's Matthew chapter 5. Jesus commended peacemaking. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. And notice how it says they shall see God. If you looked at verse 14, it says, if we don't live in purity and peace, we won't see God. So that they'll see God. This is the point. He's kind of making the same point. Our efforts at peace, making peace or living at peace, reflects our connection to the Father who is the ultimate peacemaker. Folks, that's what it is to be a child of God, is to be at peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Because every one of us is born an enemy of God because of our inherent sin and because of our practice of sin and so through the blood of Jesus Christ he pays the debt that we owed for our sin the death of Christ paid the debt so that we could be at peace with God and when God made peace with us then every one of us who is at peace with God should by virtue of the reality in us be working towards peace with other people and so doing reflect the reality of our relationship with the God who lives within us we're to pursue purity, secondly. That's the sanctification word. If you look at verse 14, at the end of that verse, the second half of that verse, he says, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall be called the sons of God. Okay? Holy, pure, undivided. In the purest parts of who we are. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means to have our right, our heart cleansed with God. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Hearts clean, our conscience cleansed from dead works to serve a living God through the blood of Christ which was shed for us, which we accept as the payment we deserve. Sanctified, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We're made pure in heart through the blood of Christ as we accept by faith his blood shed on our behalf. And it's possible, though, to claim that Christ's blood covers my sins and still live like a jerk. It's possible. And when that's possible, then we aren't really pure in heart. Because our practice defies our profession. And he says that our practice, the practice of purity, such hypocrisy will be met with, as the writer of Hebrews has told us in chapter 10, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He's calling us to a life of practical purity that testifies to the reality that we have a pure heart. Because if 
Our heart is pure. It's like this. I heard a, uh, I think I mentioned this, Joseph Tsan, who was a missionary, who was a pastor in Romania during the revolution and uh, the communists were taking over. And he says, when you get bumped, what spills out? You know, like your cup of coffee, you're carrying a cup of coffee and you get bumped. Well, coffee spills out. In your life, in my life, when I get bumped, what spills over? Jesus? so much sometimes again not perfection but progress we all make mistakes but he's calling us to press ahead towards purity you know some people say things and their life proves something different I want you to listen to what Simon had to say to an auditioner on American Idol Keith yeah um, last year I described someone as being the worst singer in America. I think you're possibly the worst singer in the world. Pursue peace and purity because our practice reveals our true identity. And I, I stand here, folks, and I tell you, there are times, if you took a snapshot of my life, you would say, whoa, I true. I'm not so sure. So it's not a snapshot. It's a, it's, a, it's a panorama, okay? It's as a progress in our life towards godliness. Simon's never heard me sing. Uh, so uh, I, I'd probably vie for the title. Uh, but uh, let's just examine our hearts. That's, I think, what he's calling us to do. Do I need to pursue peace? This is the question I ask for myself and for you. Is there someone with whom I need to pursue peace? In my family? A co-worker? In the body of Christ? Friend? Sibling? Parent? Child? Somebody that I need to pursue peace with. You see, pursuing peace means that I'm willing to seek forgiveness or I'm willing to extend forgiveness. Let them know that I'm going I'm to forgive them. And secondly, is, is my practice in line with my profession? Am I growing in Christ-likeness? One of the prayers I've been praying lately is that, God, I pray that your spirit would fill me to the point that my practice would reveal the attitudes and the actions of Christ. Because they don't always. And I want them to more consistently. And I can't do it and you can't do it, but the Spirit of God in us can do it. Peace and purity practiced individually should be evidenced within the body and that leads us to the reason for the next step because there is a danger that in the body we can have contamination that takes all of us down. And so we must protect against apostasy. Yes, we provide support. We pursue peace and purity. Finally, we must protect against apostasy. Look at verse 15. See to it. See to it means careful regard. The careful regard of those who are in responsibility for others. That means watch out for, look out for, be on the lookout. Particularly, this would be applicable to church leaders if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5. But it includes all of us who are in the body of Christ are to be on the lookout for something. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not the world's greatest grammarian, okay, but this is, this is one word. See to it is one word in the Greek. 
And it is, in, it is a participle, it's an imperative, a command that is applicable and applies to three separate phrases in this next section. So it's to see to it that, and then there is that no, that no, that no. So each of those that knows, that's a New American Standard. It may be translated differently in another version. But if you look at verse 15, look, it says, see to it that no one, okay? And then the next phrase, that no root. And then verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless. Okay, so each one of those phrases is derivative and governed by this one see to it that so there are in effect each phrase highlights one pitfall we are to perceive and prevent or protect against in the body of Christ the first one is this we're to protect against missing the grace of God see to it that no one comes short means they don't come late to the party okay we don't want anybody coming late to the party. We don't want them to miss the grace of God. We don't want them to not understand that Christ died for their sins. Grace is what? An undeserved gift, an unmerited favor. And when Christ died on the cross, he gave us an undeserved gift. His death in our place so that he died so that we could live. His righteousness placed upon us so that we would be seen right before God. And he says, make sure you don't miss it. So we are, as believers, to proclaim that. And boy, I tell you, I want to proclaim it. Christ died for you and me and for our sins so that if we would confess our sins, admit our, we're messed up, confess that we have sinned and turned away from God and accept that Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid the debt that I owed, I would be put into a right relationship with God. That's the grace. We're supposed to proclaim it. Not only we're to proclaim it, but we're to provide support to those who are struggling. We're supposed to pursue peace and purity. And so the lame will be healed. Secondly, we're to protect against contaminating the people of God. We protect against missing the grace, protect against contaminating. That's the end of verse 15. He says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now, he's drawing on Deuteronomy chapter 29. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 18, this image of the bitter root is a person who draws people away because they've gone after idolatry. And other people watch and say, oh, well, maybe that's where I should go. I want you to see Deuteronomy 29, 18. Lest there shall be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away to God, away Today, from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. This is a person whose animosity, their hostility towards God may be resting under the surface, but at some point it springs up. And the text uses those words. It springs up and it causes others to be defiled because people look at them and they say, oh yeah, that's the way, that's the way, that's the way. No, it's not the way. It's... Wormwood. I'm new to this lawn care business because we just bought our house. And so I was out the other day and I was uh, taking action against some uh, weeds in our yard. You know, I was actively after them. And I was trying to prevent those weeds from spreading their virulent tentacles into further parts of our yard. And thus contaminate the whole thing. 
And also, you know, I don't know, I got neighbors that have these immaculate yards. Like, we're, we're kind of the junk place in the middle of these two, uh, you know, home and garden places. You know? It's a little bit of humiliation, humility, uh, you know. And so, we take action. And that's what he says, in the body of Christ, we are to see those who would lead others astray. We're supposed to be on the alert, perceive it, and then take cautions to protect against it. Alert to this and isolate and eliminate spiritually venomous influences in the church. This is the book of Acts, chapter 20, where Paul tells the elders to protect the flock. Watch out, when I leave, there's people coming in and they're going to try to subvert. And finally, we're to protect against squandering the blessings of God. And this he uses an illustration of the bitter root, Esau. And we see, first of all, the example of Esau, an example of apostasy drawn from Genesis 25. And it illustrates this root of bitterness, this moral fruit of apostasy. What happens when there's apostasy in the church is what we see when we squander the blessings of God. And there are two sins that marked Esau. The first is sexual immorality. And you can go back to Genesis, and I did. You can go back to Genesis 25 and 33, and you don't see it explicitly spelled out that Esau was sexually immoral. Well, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says he was. So it's the same word from which we get our English word, pornography. Okay? So he had a problem. How you want to define it, how it's described, I don't know. But he had the problem. And what's interesting is... You know, sin infects, and these kinds of sins, when they're present, they kind of produce other stuff, like godlessness. <laughs> it just extends, and that's what he says, spiritually insensitive. Not only was he sexually immoral, but he was spiritually insensitive. He says he was a godless person. He was spiritually dull. He was without regard or concern for the things of God. And how do we know that? Because he sold his birthright. To satisfy his gut. He was hungry. So he gave up all of the spiritual blessings of being the firstborn. That he would be the head of the family. That he would have a double inheritance. That he would have all the blessings of the covenant. And he said, no, I'd rather have that red stew over there. Satisfied his gut. Esau was living for the moment. Phil Hughes describes this person as a man who profanely and contemptuously tramples underfoot that which is sacred. He's driven by instant gratification. I, there was an interview of Madonna. Um, it's been a long time ago. And she chronicled the sordid parts of her past that failed to align with actually her religious upbringing. Which I was surprised, I didn't know that. But, and here's what she had to say in conclusion. She said, rules are fine, but when they don't make sense, it is okay to rebel until they are explained or they do make sense. Well, that's convenient. This is an Esau-type person. Religious upbringing, but rules are rules only if they make sense or until you want them to make sense. Folks, that's the culture we live in. We live in a culture in which autonomy, that means individual choices, is the top authority. And the Bible says, no, the scripture is the final authority. Your autonomy is subservient to what God's word says. 
And these people are spiritually insensitive. Esau spurned his birthright. He was of the ilk that Paul described in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, whose, God, whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite. That's what he says. And the danger, the danger problem is that these people will infiltrate and infect the body of Christ. And folks, I, I mentioned that individual autonomy seems to trump God's authority. I mean... I mean, just recently, I heard someone who professes to be a believer who is living in known immorality, known immorality, who professes to be a believer and says, if you have a problem with me, this person's words, your quarrel is with my creator. So if I live in sin and you disagree with it, he says, you have a problem with my, my creator. Really? Well, I don't know who your creator is. Because I don't know the creator who condones sin. Do you see? Autonomy trumps, and that's the world in which we live. And so in the church of Jesus Christ, we must be ever vigilant to perceive and protect against that. Now, I'm not talking about witch hunts. No, all of us are fallen uh, people. All of us are in process of, of becoming more like Christ, but we need to be on the guard. And because why? Because of the end of the apostasy. Notice it says in verse 17, there was a problem with Esau, and here's what happened. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, because the blessing wasn't his, and Jacob got the blessing, Esau went to his dad, 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 help me. I, I want it back, I want it back. Sorry. Can't have it. He was aware that his birthright had been lost and the blessing had been lost and he made an emotionally charged but spiritually bankrupt appeal. And I understand the, these last two verses to mean that he sought for repentance but there was no second opportunity. See, apostasy, when we turn our back on God, there is no coming back to it. We harden ourselves against the truth to the point that there's not a second opportunity. Apostasy eliminates any second chance at repentance. I watched at the state track meet the boys 4x100 team, lead runner, get in the blocks. This is for the school that our daughter was attending. This was the guys 4x1. He got in the blocks, and the, you know, the starter goes, on your mark, and so then they get in the blocks, and, and then they shake their legs, you know, like they're getting warmed up and all this stuff, and jump up and down, and, and they get down in the blocks, get set, and he got up in his haunches, and they went, gun went off, boom, 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 boom. So for those who aren't track people, that means you're done. One chance, one mistake, and his team, he and his team were never written down in the annals of state track history because they never finished the race. Folks, God wants us to finish the race. Have our names written in the book of life. And the path to that that proves we're in the grip of God's grace involves providing others with support along the way, pursuing peace and purity, and protecting against apostasy. And if you're here this morning and you, you aren't maybe 
on the team, you're not running the race, you're kind of maybe interested in this Christianity stuff, but you're not really on the team, you're maybe an unbeliever, and you say, well, I think I'm in a pretty good spot because I don't really like all this hardship and humility and hurt and all that kind of stuff. It sounds kind of tough. I don't think I want to sign up for that. I would just admonish you, encourage you, that the peace you now enjoy because you're not subject to the the developmental discipline of God through the hurt, humiliation, and hardship that comes from naming the name of Jesus will be eclipsed by the terrifying expectation of judgment that comes to those who don't name the name of Christ. And I would not want to see you there. Admit that you are a sinful person in rebellion against God. Confess that you... No, Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid the debt that you deserve to pay so that you could live. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christ broke his body and shed his blood so that we could get in the race so that we can continue in the race. And as we turn now to remember what he did for us, it is my encouragement that we see that he declared how we could get in the race by trusting in his body broken in his bloodshed, but he also provides and declares how we can endure to the end by the presence of his spirit within us because we are his children. And so we celebrate communion at the end of our service. I will break the bread and I will invite you as the praise team leads in song to spend some time examining your heart. And then as you feel led, if you have confessed your sins right before God as best you can, I want you to come if you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior. And take some of the bread and drink some of the cup. Nobody's compelled, you know. But you're invited to come and join us as we understand what he's done for us. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Father, uh, for the work of Christ on the cross. And I ask that you'd help us to run with endurance the race that's set before us, Father. Help us to provide support for others who are faltering and stumbling. I pray that you'd give each of us courage and wisdom to pursue peace and purity in our own lives. And I pray that you'd help us all to work diligently to protect against apostasy that would draw people away from the glories of knowing Christ, the Savior, and the blessedness of forgiveness and salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.